0: Good morning, folks. My name is Mike. I'm one of the elders here at EP. And this morning, it's an honor for me to be able to read to you from the Word of God. Uh, We are continuing in our study of the book of James. This morning, we'll be uh, again in chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. And if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bibles, that's on page uh, 1288, if you'd like to look it up there. Otherwise, I think it'll be projected on these screens behind me. I won't look backwards, I'll just trust that that is happening. So let me read for you from the book of James, chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, Unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of God. Good morning, everybody. We're
1: in a new series. And those of you, since it is a full house today, I have kind of assume that everybody is back. And you missed uh, last week. And if you uh, did and you originally went online to try to hear the introduction uh, message to the letter of James, you found that it was not recorded. You might not know, but we actually record these messages four different times. And in the first time since I've been here, we had failure across the board. (laughs) And so this week I sat in my little office and uh, did a re-recording. Now, you will find that it is a less uh, passionate, <laughs> and the response from the listeners was less than thrilling, <laughs> since it was empty. <laughs> so, at least you have the content uh, without all of the live audience uh, to hear it. Um, so, we're in the second of that series, and we started... Uh, last week, and we looked at uh, suffering, and that 's why I think so many people wanted to hear it, who were not here because they would like to hear what James had to say about uh, suffering and uh, One of the things that we started uh, last week is giving you an opportunity to ask questions as we go through the message and text them, which is why on every slide you 'll see the phone number uh, printed that you can text them, and I get them actually live. Most of them I cannot answer or I felt like I did answer uh, in the message. And typically on Tuesday, I'm able to respond like this week to all of the questions that were given me. And I was able to realize that there was one common question that I think I would like to answer before we get to this passage. And it was over the issue of James saying that... Uh, hupomone, which is the word that's translated steadfastness or patience or endurance in your uh, English translations. Uh, And it says that if you let it have its full effect, if you stay up under it uh, long enough, it will perfect you. Or the word that I use, wholeness, the, the, uh, the world, the broken world has broken us and our sin has further Uh, broken us, and that what God intends to do is to make us whole. And one of the ways, and I think I said uh, last week, it is God's shortcut to wholeness is suffering. That is, things that we would never consider until we lose something important to us. And so somebody, actually quite a few, said, well, does that mean that when I am suffering, when things are hard, when I'm in a bad relationship, when things aren't going well do I have to stay in it uh, uh, forever? And the answer to the question is yes and no. Uh, And I know you don't like that, but yes, in this sense, that the purpose we said last week is that God is going to make you whole, but he's not going to do it through only one kind of suffering. And in fact, he's not even going to do it all through suffering. And therefore... Though you might go through some suffering, it's only partially to make you whole. And so if the Lord provides a way to escape the pain, the suffering, uh, then take it. Because there'll be plenty of other suffering coming your way (laughs) if you live in this world. All right. I'm sure that person probably did not appreciate that answer because it was kind of yes and no. Well, I was reading this week an article that claimed that this new technology that has just come out is going to revolutionize the world, the way that the printing press did in 1450 and the way that the steam engine did in 1750. And so, piquing your interest, what is that new technology? It's the 3D printer. That is, that they literally can now not uh, print images, um, but objects. Objects. And this article showed a picture of a Stradivarius violin, and they have been able to uh, reproduce uh, through a 3D printer a Stradivarius that played in an orchestra and sounded beautiful, as if it was a an original Stradivarius uh, made hundreds of years ago. And that's just phenomenal because there hasn't been a true Stradivarius made in hundreds of years. But a 3D printer has been able to produce one. The caption was, make me a Stradivarius. Well, if you also know that the government, particularly the federal court, has ruled a couple of weeks ago that one thing we're not allowing 3D printers to do yet, but can do, is to manufacture uh, weapons, guns. That is, because one of these plastic guns can go through metal detectors, because it's not made out of metal, that it cannot detect them. And so until we catch up with our ability to to detect these weapons, that we don't want 3D printers making them. What James is saying is this is the real world we live in, of 3D printers that can make Stradivariuses and hear music that has not been heard uh, by Stradivarius in hundreds of years, and guns that can fire and cannot be detected. And here we have a 2,000-year-old letter that speaks to us about how to live in a real world of 3D printers, how to live in a world that's like this. The little brother of Jesus, has come along under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and spoken to us in answering this question. You believe in Jesus. You believe that he is the incarnate son of God who came to live the life we should have lived and died the death that we should have died in our place. And to prove that it it was successful, he rose from the dead. You believe that. But now, how do you live on Monday morning in this broken world? This fractured world. And so James has been beginning to outline 12 skills, 12 attributes or 12 applications of believing that translate into our real world that we live. And the first one is that because we live in this real world, not a fictitious world with no suffering, we live in a world of brokenness and therefore we all experience brokenness. We need mone We need steadfastness. We need the ability to stand up under the load, the weight of pain and brokenness. And so one of the things that the gospel produces in believers is the ability to stand up under in grace under a heavy load of suffering. And because of that, if we allow it to have its full effect, it will begin to make us whole because God's ambition and goal for humanity The whole world, not just you, but the whole thing is for it to be whole again. The way, in in fact, I would say better than it was in the garden, because at least in the garden, there was a temptation of its ruin. Where we are headed is to a place where that can never happen. And that's why where we're going will be better than where we came from. And we know it's better than where we are. And you and I need the skill, the ability to stand up under that until then. This week, he looks at a different skill, a different ability, and that is wisdom. Viktor Frankl, who survived Auschwitz, he was a psychiatrist when he went in, and he was a psychiatrist when he came out. And he wrote a book uh, call it, talking about man's search for meaning. And it was about his observations about people who survived the camps versus people who did not survive the camp. He's not talking about when they execute you. That was beyond your control. But he was talking about that which was within your control in the death camp and people who survived. He said, he who has a why can endure any have to. And what he observed is prisoners who had a why, a reason, understanding, a perspective, they tended to survive if they didn't go to the ovens. And people who did not have a why for why they were there, they gave up. They lost They lost perspective, they lost their ability to stand up under, and they just caved in. And many of them... Uh, died without a particular cause. You know that there are, and you can probably remember this commercial or this series of commercials, and I love to watch commercials because marketing is so creative about our needs and our desires and our culture. And this particular commercial uh, went like this. It would show tremendous images of people with their hands raised you remember it was Muhammad Ali after his uh, defeat of Frazier that he, he raised his hands and then they had the picture of the Berlin Wall and all the Eastern Ger- uh, Germans raising their hands and then it had this caption or this tag. It was just images flash and then there would be this uh, tag and the tag would go, it's, it's the universal language of we did it. So it's whether it's a sporting or maybe it's graduation of your of your kid that you've put so much money and energy to get them through high school and college, and how many parents raise their hands and how many students raise their hands. We did it. Before Sigmund Freud ever said this, the Bible said this. In fact, before Sigmund Freud ever existed. We all do things we are not even consciously aware we are doing. That is, we don't even know we're doing this, and it's natural to us to do. And what is this? It's boasting. It's what James is talking about in this passage, and then in so many other passages in the Bible, that we boast, all of us. I love the fact that the Bible never tells you anywhere do not boast. Nowhere in the Bible is a verse that you can quote that says, don't boast. Emily Post tells you not to boast. Your mother tells you not to boast. George Bush's mom told us not to boast. But the Bible never says that. What the Bible says is that it's impossible for you to stop boasting. You can no more not boast then stop breathing on your own. But what it does ask you is, what do you boast in? Where do you boast? Let me give you a quick definition of boasting. I like this writer, and I like this writer's definition. The writer said, you boast in what you want other people to associate with. It's a tremendous, simple definition, but it's profound if you think about it. You boast in those things to other people that you want them to associate you with, whether it's a, 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 a football team or something else, maybe it's the church. You want people to associate you with what you boast in. It's a way of you identifying this is who I am and what I measure myself by. So this morning, I want us to look specifically at verses 9 through 11, but 9 and 10, where James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. What does it mean to boast in the real world in which we live? Another definition that we need before we get too far is not just the idea of what boasting is, but what is wisdom. Because he's saying we need to boast, and what we are boasting in is wisdom. Here's a definition that I think is simple yet profound. It is the skill of knowing God's world and having the ability for living in it. Think about that for a second. It's not just knowledge in general, but it is knowing God's perspective on the world in which we live and how to live in this world. It's more than simply making a good decision. Wisdom is seeing your life, other people, this world, and God himself from God's perspective. This is what C.S. Lewis said. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom. For the modern, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to the wishes of man, and the solution is a technique. Do you hear what he's saying? In the old days, we tried to understand how God had put this world together and what he intends for us, and we conform ourselves to that perspective. He says the modern man figures out inside of him what he wants, and then he conforms the world to that desire. Very different perspectives and very different ways in which to live and james is saying one of those is wisdom and one of those is foolishness and if you if you begin to ask god god show me this world from your perspective, show me myself from your perspective, show me others from your perspective, and show me yourself from your perspective, it will clash with your own understanding of those things. Because you've had other inputs, including your own conscience, to answering that question or those questions. And the way that James, he could have used anything he wanted to, he's going to use two trials, two types of lives, and he's going to apply wisdom to each of those. And one of those we recognize as a trial. The other we do not recognize as a trial. One of them he calls lowly. The other he calls prosperity. So one can be an adversity and the other can be a prosperity, and we do not see prosperity as a trial, but let's save that till the end. To whom is James speaking? Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. He's speaking to Christians who believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them, who God is and what God has said about them. But the lowly, even though they are Christians, can be lowly of any sort. It could be economically, it could be socially, it could be educationally, it could be about privilege, it could be about position. And this morning, you, you might be thinking that, okay, you're going to give me wisdom, great. And you're talking about the lowly, that's how I feel. And so James says, let me give you wisdom about how you feel. That lowly put up their hands and boast. But boast in what? And James says, in your exaltation. And you say, like the RCA dog, huh? what's an exalt- what exaltation am i experiencing that i can boast in? in in fact this morning you might have barely got up this morning you you woke up depressed you're still depressed but somehow you've you figured out how to get in this room get your body in a shower and maybe not And got to this place and sat in a pew next to someone else. And they've discovered you didn't shower. But you want to hear something that's going to lift you up. Instead of leave you down. And you hear James say to the lowly, he's talking to me. Lift your hands up and boast in your exaltation. What in the world is he talking about? The Bible never romanticizes lowliness, particularly poverty. He never romanticizes oppression. He never romanticizes slavery. Never turns that into, man, aspire to those things. But I want you to know that Christianity has primarily been a a faith and a religion of poor, of the lowly. This is what Philip Jenkins, a historian, said. Christianity is flourishing among the poor. He's looking at the world today. Christianity is flourishing among the poor in the world while it atrophies among the rich. Have you ever asked yourself why that's true? At one time, the center of Christianity was Western Europe in the United States, North America. And today, the center of Christianity, where Christianity is exploding is South America and Africa and Asia. Have you ever asked your question yourself, why is that true? Why is it that you can go into many churches that at one time were filled to the brim, at one time were packed with followers of Jesus and were packed with people who came to know Jesus? But you go to those churches today and they're either empty or they're filled with people who want to see a museum. Whether you're in Europe or here, have you ever asked yourself why that's true? Well, it's something that George Gallup has been asking himself. George Gallup's a believer. He has been measuring culture and history uh, for decades. And so his conclusion after all of that study over those decades is this. He says, The poor are people who know dire economic straits, yet their trust has enabled them to find a joy in life outside their grim conditions. Yes, they are burdened, but they are more grateful, they are more giving, and they are more forgiving. Why? Because they possess what we lack, an awareness of our true condition. What is our true condition before God? It is our poverty. That is our need for Him. James says, Wisdom for lowly is to boast in God... And what God has said for the lowly, because that's all they've got. And it's easier for them to see because they don't have than those that have means to see that. Those who are lowly have nothing to boast in but God. So what am I supposed to boast in? Listen to Jeremiah 9. It says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, not let the strong man in his strength, let the rich, let not the rich boast in his wealth, but let the one who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love. I've started trying to, to, to learn Zephaniah 3 because I think it speaks to us about boasting about boasting in what God says about us in a way that you and I, average Christians in America, who are prosperous, do not think of ourselves. It's foreign to us to think that God God thinks this way about us. Do not fear, Zephaniah 3 says, but rejoice, for the Lord your God is in your midst. He is the one who saves you. He rejoices over you with gladness. We are sure that God saves us, but we kind of think he just tolerates us. We've done just enough to be in his presence, but no more. And yet, Zephaniah says, he quiets you with his love and he exalts over you with loud singing. Whenever I I think of that, I think of a mother who grabs a child and sings lullabies. Do you recognize that that's what God does for you? He doesn't tolerate you. God loves you. Do you feel exalted today and you say, no, I don't. I feel quite lowly. Well, there's probably a couple of reasons for that. One, your feelings have not yet caught up with reality. Back to Lewis. There's a point where your, how you feel needs to catch up with the reality of what God has said about you. And you don't feel it. Okay. How does James handle that? James says in verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. I want you to understand something about that verse. It does not say. It does not say you've got two great choices and you don't know which one to take and you ask God which one. He doesn't mean for those of you who are students that it's okay not to study and party right up to the exam and ask God, please give me the wisdom that I should have gotten on last night and all week in preparation for this exam and hopes that he will give you enough information to pass your exam. He does not mean that. He means this. He means your feelings have not caught up with the reality. First, it means knowing what the reality is. But then secondly, you don't feel what the reality teaches you. There's a clash of your perspectives and you need wisdom to see that. That's what he means. But it could also mean not just that your feelings haven't caught up with reality, but because you don't feel exalted today, it could mean you're not low enough yet. That's a little harder to receive because you think you're already at the bottom. And you might be at the bottom and you need to see the perspective, but for some, we haven't yet gone low enough. And James says, this is wisdom for the lowly. And then he juxtaposes that against those who are prosperous And instead of boasting in your exaltation, he parallels it and says, now I want you to boast if you're prosperous, if you're successful, if you're secure in your humiliation. What in the world could James mean about a humiliation? Let me use a story that that Jesus uses. Jesus says, if you get invited to a wedding and you happen to be one of the few people who are on time, that is, it's an EP wedding and you happen to uh, get there and you can pick any seat you want and you sit at the host table, please understand that is not boasted in your humiliation, but in your exaltation <clears throat> or what you hope to be your exaltation. And Jesus warns you that if you do that, the host might have to come to you and say, Hey, someone more important than you is going to sit here. You need to sit at the kitty table. Jesus encourages us that when we get there early and we've got choices, go sit at the kiddie table first. Because when the host sees you sitting there, he might come up to you and say, no, 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 no. I want you to sit here. And in front of all your friends, you're being paraded. That is exalting in your humiliation. Last night, after the Philistines beat the Israelites by a field goal... I needed something to make me laugh instead of cry. And so we watched an episode of Frasier, and if you don't know what that is, that's all right. You can. It's about two uh, pretentious snobs who are brothers who are constantly trying uh, to show how great they are, refined they are, things like that. But what they hate about their lives is that they're both sons who, by the way, the dad lives with one of them, of a blue-collar beat cop. And they constantly want to connect themselves. So this particular episode that we were watching last night was about these two uh, uh, finding out that they have some connection to the Romanov family in Russia, royalty. And so they have this clock that only the Romanovs have, and so how do they get it? So they bring in an expert who comes in and talks about the history of how this particular clock got in their family's hands, and it wasn't because they are royalty, which is what they thought they were, it was because the scullery maid who was in the house of the Romanov stole it. She moves to the United States and that's how the Crane family gets started and she ends up being a prostitute. And so for Frazier and his brother Niles, what started out to be a hope for being more than they were turned out to be they were lower than they thought. Here's James' point. It's almost like James wrote Frasier. It is better to be humble Than to be humiliated. We know that. We agree with that. But it is also better to be humiliated than it is to be blind. That we don't tend to think. It is better to be humble than it is to be humiliated. But Frazier and Niles found out it is far better to be humiliated than it is to be blind to their condition. And that's where what, what prosperity does to us. It blinds us to our condition. This A week ago, one of our staff was sharing, we've been sharing our stories with each other, and one of the staff was sharing her story and one of the, one of the things that she was sharing her story, and though it was very painful and very emotional, but you could tell that she was recognizing that because it is part of her story, it is also part of the glory. And so that is a way to exalt in your humiliation because it's a humiliating story. And it's something that typically prosperous people don't tell. And quite frankly, it's part not only of our story individually, but it's part of our story collectively. And when we push that to the side and the only stories we tell are our success stories but not our failures, but of our exaltation and honor and glory and not of our humiliation, then we are not telling the whole story. And James is saying that is dangerous. Did you know historians believe that the American church is the wealthiest church that has ever existed in human history. And you might be saying, well, great, I'm part of the wealthiest church in human history, but I'm not wealthy. Well, this week I looked up a couple of statistics for you from uh, uh, Richard uh, Stearns, who's the president of World Vision. That's a ministry that ministers to the poorest of poor in the world, bringing food and bringing water. And Richard Stearns says this, if you make more than $50,000 a year you're in the top 1% of everyone who has ever lived in human history. If you make more than $50,000 a year, you already are in the top 1% of the people who have lived in the world. But if you make more than uh, $25,000, that's above the national poverty line, by the way. If you make more than $25,000, you're in the top 10% of the, all the people alive today. Because 80% of the world lives on $10 a day. 80% of the people who are on this planet of the 7 billion people live off of $10 a day. We flush cleaner water than most people have to drink. We are blinded by and to our own need, our own prosperity. And therefore, James is saying, you need to boast in these stories of your brokenness because they remind you of your need for Jesus. Look at verses 10 and 11. And the rich in their humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, we will pass away. For the sun rises and its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Why not associate yourself with your prosperity? Because it's fading away. King Tut is already proven to every human being that you can't take it with you. Because when they opened it up, it was still all there. Boast in those things that helps you remember how vain and ambitious you are. Embrace The painful moments. Now this is the kettle calling the pot black. But we need to embrace the painful moments of our lives because that's what reminds us uh, that we can be blinded by the success that has come into our lives. And the truth is, sometimes you and I have to lose our reputations in order to discover that Jesus is the only reputation we ever needed. And it seems like people of poverty get that quicker and better than people of success and prosperity. And prosperity is dangerous precisely because it obscures our need for Jesus. And wisdom is seeing that Jesus is all we need. That you're desperate, that I am desperate for grace. And so the gospel to all of us is that we are far poorer than we feared. That is even though we have the means, we're in the top 1%, or the top 10%, because we can't see our need, we are poorer than we thought. But in Christ, we are far wealthier than we ever dreamed. And therefore, James says, boast in Christ. Associate with the cross. That's what Paul does in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live by faith, I live in the one who loved me and delivered himself up for me. You see what Paul's doing. He could could claim to be the most successful of the apostles. He could claim to have the authority of Christ. He could claim he's the the great missionary of the church. And instead, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's not me who's living now but Christ in me. And therefore, this hupomone, this steadfastness, this standing up under, creates wisdom. Because as we stand up, we learn this lesson. Whoever has God and nothing else has everything. And whoever has everything but not God has nothing And God alone is enough. And sometimes we don't learn that until humiliation. That's where we are. And that's wisdom. Whether you're lowly or you're prosperous. And both are a trial for us. So let's pray. Father, thank you. I thank you so much that we are learning this that these are the lessons that we can learn with each other, that we grow in grace for the lowly who feels depressed, who feels that they need, but what they need is you. And for the prosperous, the successful, Father, give us your perspective on us, on the world, on other people, and on yourself, that we might see that Jesus is enough. That even if we have nothing and we have Jesus, we have everything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.